Hello and welcome back. It's Benjamin Rose and myself, Dalia Gutenberg, with Mishpachat's home front, a wide angle view of Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Hello, Benjamin. Hello, Gedalia. And this morning, we really do have good news to lead with, and that's with the rescue of two of our hostages, Louis Har and Fernando Marmon. I found it interesting. They're both Argentinians, and the president of Argentina, Javier Millet, was just here. He prayed at the hotel. They took pictures of him dancing around, which supposedly enraged the Palestinians. And I guess his prayers were answered because two of his countrymen were released. It was a combined effort of the intelligence services, the Shin Bet, police counterterrorism units, and a couple of army units. From what I understand, they had scoped out the house for quite some time. So they had an idea that the hostages were inside. And when they finally arrived today, so they arrived with helicopters and there was air power in the background in order to provide cover. The troops entered the house through the Mirpesa, through the through a window. And as soon as they identified the captives, they put flak jackets on them and helmets. And from what I understand, the Channel 14 reported, I've seen a lot of details elsewhere, but Channel 14 specifically reported that there were four troops that surrounded each hostage from each side to protect them. In addition, of course, to the flak jacket and to the helmet so that they could be brought to safety. They were flown then by helicopters to Tel Ashomer Hospital. And they had a reunion with their family members. And thank God, they both seem to be in good health. Good as it can be considering. Yes. And indeed, there's actually a reunification of the family because the sibling of one spouse of another were released in their hostage exchange back a couple of months ago. You mentioned the Argentinian president. I can't help but flag our cover a couple of weeks ago, which was basically an interview with his incoming ambassador to Israel, who is Haredi Kirov Rabbi. And it prompted the somewhat unforgettable cover text at the time, Shalom Javier, which I leave it to those with a historic memory to work out exactly the profundity thereof. But anyway, on to this rescue. Details are coming out, I'm sure. Next few hours is going to be more. Hamas with gunmen were firing from, it prompted a massive gun battle around. And I'm sure by now, a lot of people have seen the after effects of their Air Force bombing of that. There were tanks involved, etc. Anyway, I think now it's a chance to take a look at a little bit about where it happened, because the rescue happened in what the foreign press called Rafa and what Israel called Rafiaf. And it's rapidly becoming a very important focus of the next stage, possibly the final stage of the Gaza war overhead because of the last major bastion of Hamas stronghold. Remember, we talked about the population in the northern Gaza Strip is all flooded to the center, now to the south as well. And apparently in this town of a population of a few tens of thousands or in the surrounding area, there are now over a million Gazans. Just a bit of history, Benjamin, because it's always interesting in these areas. I think we've not done this for a few months. At the beginning of the battle, we noted how Gaza was such an ancient Jewish history. Wikipedia tells me that in 217 BCE, the Battle of Rafiach was fought between the victorious Ptolemy IV and Antiochus III, said to be one of the largest battles ever fought in the Middle East with over 100,000 soldiers and hundreds of elephants. Now, why is that interesting? Because we've just come off the back of Hanukkah, not just, but some time ago. And Antiochus III was famous for being the father of Antiochus IV, who was the wicked Antiochus. So that's one thing. And the Hashmonaim eventually conquered the town under Alexander Yanai. Anyway, I just put that in for our biannual history plug over there. As the saying goes, Gedalia, history repeats itself. Correct. Here we are back again. And I'm sure if Basar Smotrich and his voters had anything to do with it, we'll be just staying there around, repeating the exploits of Alexander Yanai, not giving it back. But I think it's important to know, Benjamin, that modern history 
why is this such a flashpoint? What is it? And we've noted in the past few weeks that the Egyptians are very against Israel reconquering, retaking Rafiah. And the reason, one of the reasons anyway, is because it's a town that sits on the border, right? The Gaza border splits Rafah in two. There's an Egyptian part and a Gaza or possibly now Israeli part again, and it's divided families. And in fact, they destroyed the center of the town in 1982 to create a buffer zone. Now, again, we're referring to Wikipedia as being claimed in order to cope with the division of town, smugglers made tunnels under the border, connecting two parts, permitting the smuggling of goods and persons. So that's a nice way of saying these people are chronic smugglers, but the actual smuggling, which is now bedeviled, which is Hamas has been able to use these tunnels to get stuff from Egypt into Gaza, the smuggling began back then when the town was divided. Back into the present, I think there's some takeaways I'd like your take on. Egypt said it would possibly, if Israel invaded Rafiach, it would trigger suspension of the Camp David Accords, which is very serious. It's Israel's oldest peace agreement. But now the Wall Street Journal is reporting that Egypt has warned Hamas it must reach a hostage for ceasefire deal with Israel within two weeks, or Israel will move into Rafah. So I would posit, Benjamin, takeaway number one, that pressure is ultimately working, military pressure. That's what we see. As much as they say, don't move in, don't move in, there's a strong case to be made that we need to defy the world and do what's necessary because that ultimately gets results. That's what I'd say, point one, Benjamin. And point two, I'd just like your take on, is the second dynamic. Notice that although Biden has said, no, no, don't go in, in a readout of the call last night between Bibi and Biden, he didn't actually veto the IDF going into Rafah. He just said, it needs to be done in a way that it takes care of the 1.3 million Palestinians there. So I think, once again, I would say that when Israel holds strong on its core national security needs, the world will eventually grudgingly give way. Vidali, I'm going to go back a little bit further in history. I'm going to go back to the 1978 Camp David Accords between Egypt and Israel and the peace treaty. At that time, Remember, Israel had uh, conquered Gaza as part of the 1967 Six-Day War, and they took yeah. over the Gaza Strip and all of the Arabs who lived there at the time. I'll just add a personal note. I came to Eretz Israel for the first time in 1973, a few months before the Six-Day War, with my parents, Alayim Shalom. Yes, the Yom Kippur War, thank you. And we traveled all over, including what's known as the West Bank. When we drove into Gaza for the first time, from uh, the Ashkelon area. Uh, we drove into Gaza. We got to a circle, maybe, I don't know, maybe 100 meters into Gaza. We saw the hostility on the faces of the population there. And my father said, I think we better make a U-turn and get out of here. And so even then, Gaza was a hotbed. I always thought that Menachem Begin, may he also rest in peace, made a mistake in not forcing Egypt to take back Gaza when we were giving the Sinai back. People seem to forget that, but that was a real political football at the time during the Camp David negotiations between Israel and Egypt that Jimmy Carter. You mean they had leverage at that point to force them to take it back? Yep, they could have said, if you're taking back the Sinai, which was difficult enough for us to do because at that time it was providing almost all of the oil that we needed from a couple of oil fields in Sinai, but we begged let Egypt to get away with not taking it back. And it ended up becoming a thorn in our side rather than a thorn in their side. That's still what's motivating and governing Egyptian policy. They don't want anything to do with Gaza. Nobody wants anything to do with Gaza. Very true. And it's still the thorn in our side. So right now, Egypt is protecting its territory. They're protecting its interests. 
and they're reinforcing the border and reinforcing the wall between and the fence between Gaza and Egypt to make sure that there isn't a flood of refugees in there. And they also sent some tanks into that area, which I believe, according to the Camp David Accord, they're not allowed to do because there are limitations on the weaponry that either side can introduce into the Sinai. So Israel has to, at one, be very careful. They don't want to escalate. They don't want to start a war with Egypt. Egypt has threatened that they might unilaterally abrogate the peace treaty with Israel if Israel attacks Rafah and there ends up being a flood of refugees. I don't think that's going to happen. What I mean, I don't think it's going to happen. I think Israel will attack. I don't think Egypt will uh, try to cancel the peace treaty because if they do, then all their American aid they've been getting all these years goes down the drain. So I think that's an idle threat. So that brings us back to the question you asked about Israel protecting its interests. Egypt is protecting theirs and Israel has to protect its own. And they have to go ahead and do what they need to do militarily in order to take control of the area, clean up the Hamas infrastructure that's been built, which includes the smuggling tunnels between Egypt and Gaza. And then when that's all said and done, then we can start talking about in a serious way the day after. Yeah, I agree. And I think that time will tell. Ultimately, it's going to be the refugee issue is going to stick. They won't be flooding across the border to Sinai. That's clear. But at the same time, there will be an IDF operation. I think that's now increasingly clear, which means that the refugees will be dealt with internally and will still will end up with a situation in which Gaza and its refugees remain a thorn in Israel's side. I think that's a twin dynamic to emerge. What we talked about at the beginning of perhaps there'll be a mass movement elsewhere. That's not going to happen. But at the same time, Israel is going to do the work and they're increasingly confident that even if there is going to be a longer ceasefire in some manner, shape or form soon, I don't expect that. But Israel will eventually go back to fighting because the social pressure to do so is very telling. And more on that in a moment, because I've been talking to various people. We'll get to that at the end. Let's just move to talk about what is an emerging big political story, which is the possibility of a real breakdown between the Americans and the Israelis over this, the Biden baby breakdown, at least as reported by the Washington Post. So we have to remember, even though we just said that ultimately Biden basically said he's not going to veto an Israeli incursion into Rafah, but the environment the baby is operating in is increasingly hostile when it comes to the American administration, because we saw in this disastrous, Biden's disastrous Thursday night press conference, when he was meant to be pushing back on the special counsel's invest words, that he's actually too old to be in power. That was essentially the message. And he was meant to demonstrate that he was young and fit as a fiddle. And he went and referred to Egyptian president Al-Sisi as the president of Mexico, no less. Ole. Ole, <laughs> correct. And necessitating a massive cleanup operation which pulls absolutely no one from White House said. But amongst those remarks, he then went off as a loose cannon. It's hard to know what Biden actually means because precisely he is uncontrolled. Vague. Yeah, his speaking is, is not... Say. What do you say? Sorry to say. It's obvious. Correct. He's all over the place. What he did say was that Israeli actions in Gaza, he said something to the effect of the top. And that seems to be the general tenor of the administration now. And I think there's a report in the Washington Post then subsequently that President Biden is top eight but closer to a breach with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu than at any time since the Gaza war began. The report reads, no longer viewing him as a productive partner could be influenced even in private, according to several people familiar with their internal discussion. 
Benjamin, the language of the Washington Post, if you just read the piece, indicates what I think is obvious, that he is a holdout from an era of Democrats who were essentially pro-Israel, being tugged by mighty currents the other way in the direction of the Obama generation and leftward, who are far less pro-Israel than he is. And amongst that, I would say that when you see the report in which they call Bibi an unpopular leader whose scorched earth policies are eroding support, and that he talks of, quotes Ben Rhodes, who was Obama's mouthpiece and is obviously very anti-Bibby. And he talks about Biden's patience wearing thin, Bibby snubbing Biden, Israel's over-the-top actions. Those are the overwhelming tenor of the administration's remarks. It doesn't look good. That's what I'd say, Benjamin. I have three comments, Gedalia. But you're right, it doesn't look good. The first comment is that the Washington Post is probably one of the media outlets that I think supports left-wing side pretty overtly. Again, every uh, publication has the right to have its editorial slant the way they want to. And nowadays, editorial slants creep into reporting as well. That's just the facts of life in journalism. Not when I studied journalism in college in the 1970s, but that's the way it is now. And the Washington Post has an interest, along with people like Barack uh, Rabida Axios and the Channel 12 and Channel 13 here in Israel, to try to make it look like uh, things are much worse than they really are. So that's the kind of reporting that you're going to get from them. I would take it as a warning, very much. I would also take it with a grain of salt. My feeling is that there's not going to be a big break between the U.S. and Israel nor between the Biden administration and Netanyahu, they'll find a way to patch over their differences because of the interests of both countries uh, that are much greater. And I'm saying that as someone who I've always considered my beat at Mishpacha, the U.S.-Israel relationship. And my readers are certainly aware that I've often been very critical of all of the U.S. administration, starting with the George W. Bush, which is when I started writing for Mishpacha, and all the way through the Biden administration about certain aspects of the way the U.S. views things and how they handle the relationship. But nevertheless, there's such a strategic importance to this relationship, not just in the Middle East, but the way it reflects on the U.S. ability to be an ally to other nations. If the U.S. really breaks with Israel, then uh, I think it makes every other country in the world who's allied with the U.S. take a second look and say, I don't think we can trust the U.S. either. That's one of the reasons why I feel that we won't see a big break. Somehow we'll see things papered over. Another thing that's uh, worth mentioning is I've covered some APAC conventions over the years. And I remember Joe Biden, when he was vice president, speaking at one of the APAC conventions, getting thunderous applause. These were in the days where he was really quite a dynamic speaker and he knew how to play to an audience. I remember after his speeches, how he hugged several of the key officials at APAC who were on the stage with him. APAC supported Biden for decades. As a senator, they've invested a lot of money in him, if you will. There were uh, left-wing media outlets that pointed out uh, in 2000, probably 2020, when Biden was running for president, that some of the people who had raised money for him at APAC were now on his presidential fundraising committee. So Biden's got some uh, pretty deep roots on the money end when it comes to Israel as well. That could account partially, at least, for his support for Israel. But you know what I think that for him, he's a very visceral figure in the sense that he, he is what he is, he believes what he believes, and at least on the core, Israel seems to be very deep-seated, and I think people used to roll their eyes about it. But then when you see Benjamin, the clear difference between Biden himself, who wants to clearly suffice with the rhetoric, at least so far, in chastising Israel, 
and the Obama acolytes who would like to actually sanction Israel, I think we get a clear sort of sense of the, where Biden's beliefs actually lie, even if he's being tugged leftward. That's my sense. Israel has to be very careful because you just don't know which ways are going to play. I'll just drip out one line or so from uh, my column this week that's going to appear in uh, the edition that comes out on Wednesday, that if you take a look at what's happening with the statements that both parties are making about aid to Israel, and that includes former President Trump, who uh, suggested that uh, foreign aid should be loans and not grants anymore. Which is not a bad idea. Look, the U.S. has the right to do. That's something I pointed out. Uh, I mean, it's historically, that's how they did with the rich countries. In the Second World War, there was Lend-Lease to Britain, which I always found fascinating that Britain only finished paying off its World War II debt to the U.S. in the mid-2000s. So that's how it is. Why not? The, Good idea. The rule book is changing, and uh, Israel has to be aware of that, but that doesn't mean that you can't play by different rules. So that's what I think uh, we're going to see happening over the next couple of years, where they're going to just sports the NFL every year. They uh, get together, they get the owners' meetings at the end of the season, and they uh, tweak the rules, probably more so than any other sport. They're going to be tweaking the rules of foreign policy as well, and uh, they'll be tweaking the rules, at least, uh, of the U.S.-Israel relationship. But again, a total break, I, I just don't see happening. I want to move on just to conclude with one item, which was not necessarily, it's not uplifting, but it's human anyway. I had a conversation uh, the last few days with a soldier who's come back after three months in Miluim. And it was remarkable to see the change. This is a person I know fairly well. He's what I'd say is a twinkling optimist in many ways. After three months day, he emerged a very different person. Obviously, he's processing a lot. Of, his unit was one of the first into Beiri afterwards, and then into Gaza, etc. many missions. And he described some of the missions there. It's scary. He's scary. He described being sent in by a stupid commander who got the tank column blocked in a small alleyway where they couldn't traverse the turrets, left them sitting ducks. But he said, okay, those are tactical local things, and it can be any level. This can happen anywhere. What I saw was a sense of disillusionment with the army as an institution. And what he said was, we saw the utter collapse of the army, not just on October the 7th, but he said afterwards, the collapse he thinks was symptomatic of the overall rot in the army. He said, we'd been paying very high taxes to fund the big army, but we did not have the material. The equipment that the army consistently provided was inferior. If it not been for family and friends who paid for tactical vests and for helmets, we would have been stuck. And then he said an incredible thing. You know, I mean, we were all part of this mass fundraising effort three and a half months ago, in which we're busy there fundraising for family and friends to have their knee pads and their scopes and Gaza. And I didn't realize it gone so far. He said that we did not have enough rounds of ammunition at one stage. And we were told we have to conserve ammunition. We're talking about bullets because it's an infantry man. We have to conserve ammunition because we're waiting for an overseas shipment. Now, he was saying, bullets, you don't get any more basic than that. Israel manufactures this. Why are they not for 50, 100 million rounds of ammunition sitting in a warehouse somewhere? They clearly weren't because it's not a distribution problem. They were clearly told, we do not have enough conserve ammunition waiting for overseas. And his question was, the soldiers have the will to fight. We know we're going to go back into the north now and we're willing to do the job. The soldiers, he says, that the people responsible for running this army, he said, he just doesn't total disillusionment with the army and institution. I just like to just let that video because what I think is that there is a potential tsunami waiting to happen. The system what he was witnessing and that we saw collapse on October the 7th was rotten. 
It's a massive systemic failure. Not one, not 10, not tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of troops saw this up front. They're motivated to fight, but they've got their eyes open to the systemic failure of that. And the question is that, again, we've talked about that's the potential to create a realignment in Israeli society because people, these troops are angry. They're very angry. We don't know whether the pieces are going to fall. That, Benjamin, is to me a startling insight. And I think if you talk to a lot of people, you're going to get the same insights as well. It's an insight into that we're perhaps removed from, that these people saw at the sharp end the collapse of the Israeli state, and they won't be the same people again. This is part of the reassessment that has to go on after the war. Israel's addiction to pre, so to speak, U.S. military aid is uh, something that has to end. There is no free lunch. There is no free military aid. There's always strings attached. And whatever we can make ourselves, we should make ourselves. And whatever we still have to buy from overseas military manufacturers, so be it. But self-sufficiency is the name of the game. And the more self-sufficient Israel becomes, the better off it'll be and the more freedom of action they'll have. And also the safer it'll be for our soldiers when we have to go and fight. I agree. If I were just thinking about it, the one concluding line that this soldier said to me, he said, in a disillusionment, but also with a positive spin, he said that I've seen that this country runs by and runs on a nace. He says there's no other way that we can exist here with such rotten leadership and such rotten institutions. That's something that's opened the last few months, opened all of our eyes to. We say, tell him, Im Hashem shav you can invest in any army you want, and it can, if Hashem doesn't want it to succeed. And overnight, we did see the positive side of that that were somehow, despite the tremendous fire from Hamas all around, they rescued these two fortunate men. And may Hashem, just like he's shown his kindness to these two men and reunited their families, so too, with 134 more hostages, or however many of them are still alive, who still need that display of Yad Hashem. I'm here, but wish you, Benjamin, and to listeners everywhere, a good and successful day.